Acts chapter 8, verse 26 through the end of the chapter of the New King James Version. God's word declares, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found in Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. In Acts, and we are looking forward to working our way. This is uh, coming into the transition period between dealing more with Peter and, and moving more towards Paul. In fact, next week we're going to have Paul's conversion uh, account uh, given to us as we move into the next chapter of the book of Acts. Um, but here we're going to be dealing uh, with uh, this transition period, and a lot of people just call it that, but it's really more significant than that. Uh, we have looked at the early church, and it's planting there in Jerusalem, or the ministry of the apostles. And out of the working of the church, of course, we had a problem. And so if anyone of you think that problems are unique to modern churches, they were there in the first century, and first, back the first few months. And one of those problems, of course, was that in the intake of uh, provisions, of whether it's monetary or otherwise, and in its distribution, which the distribution was not to the apostles, the apostles were distributing it to the widows and orphans, which is the primary focus, should be, of the church's uh, administration of financial resources, um, that uh, some of the widows were being overlooked. And there was a group there of Greek widows that the apostles just didn't have a lot of contact with. They just simply, uh, it was a different area, a realm of uh, movement, of social networking, if you will. And so they were overlooked. And the apostles don't question that and say, oh, we're trying our best. They rather go to the church and say, well, the solution is for you to select seven men. We'll put them in charge of this because it's really not our job. It's really, our job is to teach you and to admonish you, to to strengthen the church. It's really not our job to handle the distribution of funds and and Oh, that pastors would listen to that more in these days. Um, but uh, it's really not our job. So you you pick seven men. you set, And we'll set the qualifications for them before you. But you select from among yourselves seven men. 
And we have seven of them described for us in Acts. And, of course, the first one was Stephen, and we looked at his uh, ministry, and we might think, well, that's pretty a brief ministry. He was stoned to death. Um, but it was very powerful because of its impact upon the church, but also an impact upon the Judaic community, um, at, uh, particularly among the Greek uh, freemen, is what it's called, uh, the, that's primarily Greek, and uh, the freemen synagogues. And so here Luke is taking some time to really deal with the ministry of these, what we would call lay people. Many people feel these seven would represent what the deacon ministry is in, in modern churches. And I don't see a lot of uh, complaint against that anywhere in God's word. Um, but we often associate, well, lay ministry isn't uh, the, the powerful one. Um, it's, the, it's the professional clergy. It's the apostles. And then later on, Paul. Um, but we lose track of really the force of what Luke is trying to teach here is that the apostles were enveloped really in the temple ministry. People had to come to them. They had to come to the temple to learn. Um, they had to come to the temple to be healed. They had to come to Jerusalem. And so all the outlying areas that God told them, you need to go to them, they were staying in Jerusalem, making all of them come to, to us. We're going to position ourselves here. Even with the persecution coming, um, with the stoning of Stephen, uh, it says everyone went everywhere preaching the gospel except for the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. They saw that as their primary ministry. And Luke um, wants to take some time to show us, that, you know, these laymen, these seven, these the seven men that weren't the apostles that walked with Jesus. They weren't commissioned with that kind of authority uh, in terms of, of church leadership, but they had very powerful ministry that went far beyond the distribution of resources to widows. Uh, and in fact, we find right away that Stephen is a man, and by the way, remember the, the requirements. The requirements to be one of the seven was full of faith and wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. And so we have that description of them. And when you select those kinds of guys who are full of faith, full of wisdom, and full of the Holy Spirit, they're going to do a lot more than just one job. And these two really give a representation of the seven. That these seven men uh, were going to serve the church, certainly, but they had a passion for the gospel. And they were the ones that are going to really obey the commands, while the apostles tended to kind of be reserved. And we're going to find just how reserved they are later on, that God has to come along and say, shake them a little bit. Peter, listen to me. Um, I have a bigger plan for salvation than what's in your mind right now. And so God's going to have to do some very uh, powerful and direct things among the apostles to get them to obey the command of Acts 1.8. But these seven were different. No one had to shake them up. No one had to uh, light a fire under them. No one had to give them directives. They had to have no visions and dreams to have this passion for reaching others with the gospel. And for Stephen, he saw that synagogue over there. He says, no one's going into that synagogue of the freedmen. They need to hear the gospel too. It can't just be our normal circles. We need to go out to these predominantly Greek-speaking people, and we need to reach them. And of course, they were resistant, but he had a powerful influence over many, many of the priests 
who as they brought to trial over one guy named Saul, who is going to be renamed Paul here very soon, um, who becomes one of the most uh, well-known missionaries of the time, another uh, biblical, maybe of all time, and certainly from whom we get a great portion of our New Testament. We come then to Philip, the second in the list of the seven that were selected by the church to handle what in our mind is an administrative responsibility. But because of the qualifications, these are men that are going to serve God. And Philip is one that isn't going to wait for the pastor to say, we need to send, start up something over here. We need to start something there. No, he's heading out. And uh, we found him going to Samaria in the beginning of chapter 7. Uh, two or three weeks ago, we saw him going out to Samaria with the gospel and uh, performing some powerful sign miracles for the Samaritans who were half Jew and half uh, Gentile. And so Jews didn't really want anything to do with them. In fact, uh, uh, we saw a couple weeks ago how the church in Jerusalem was like, do you really think God wants Samaritans in the kingdom? Uh, well, he did command you to go to Samaria. I don't know who you're going to reach other than Samaritans by going to Samaria. And so they sent Peter and John to go check that out. And, and by their arrival, the coming of the Holy Spirit comes to Samaria in equal force and power and authority as it came to the Jews in Jerusalem. But I want you to notice that the one who spearheaded that ministry, that outreach to the Samaritans, was not an apostle. It was one of the seven. That while the apostles were in the temple, Philip was in Samaria. Well, God uses instruments like that. And I've often told people that sometimes it's hard for me to find and to have relationships uh, with unbelievers because your ministry starts to get so inward focused in the church and it's very easy for pastors to succumb to that. To just focus on what I have and try to minister to those needs and we pick up counseling ministries. We we have... uh, um, dealing with uh, every issue of trying to develop faithfulness in people and teaching ministries, and all those are vital and valuable. I'm not discrediting them. I'm saying that the tendency in the ministry, um, from my perspective, is to stay inward. But God has graced these individuals to go outward. And Stephen goes out to that synagogue that's kind of neglected and ignored by the apostles because they're not really in their circles. And now Philip goes out, and he's going to go out to Samaria. That's the nearbearing community just to the north of Judea. And God is going to reveal himself now. We're going to see him move and expand the gospel in a very powerful way. Um, And in fact, we credit a huge ecclesiastical movement, a movement of salvation to this one encounter here before us in Acts chapter 8. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our grace, God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word this morning and for the uh, privilege that's ours to be able to reflect upon its truth and to see its power. And we pray that we might uh, be open, uh, certainly discerning uh, of your truth, that you might guard this time from error, from opinion, from the thoughts of men and, and of society's philosophies, but also, Lord, uh, that we might be open to the authority of your word that as you declare it, that it carries weight, that we should obey it, and we will be held accountable for not doing so, whether that be in our salvation or in our walk, to please you. 
And so Lord, we pray for your direction now. My guard this time. And again, that it might be profitable to the saints and glorifying to your name. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are in Acts chapter 8, beginning verse 26. And we have uh, uh, something that is going to be brought up later on with Paul. But we find really since Pentecost, the first real revelation of a heavenly being engaged in this. We do have uh, the activity throughout the, the jailing of Peter and John, um, but we have here an instruction. So far, the last real instruction we have had has, has been from Christ. Uh, we have now uh, this instruction to Philip, and the angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord appears to him and speaks to him, I should say, and says, Arise and go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And uh, Luke helps us because the reader, Theophilus, a uh, friend of God, um, person to whom he is writing this letter of Acts, uh, was likely not very familiar with the terrain of Israel. And so Philip is taken from Samaria to the north. He says, I want you to travel all the way south, and I want you to set up shop, if you will, on the road between Jerusalem and Gaza. Now, that means something today, doesn't it, to us? Because the road from Jerusalem to Gaza is still a pretty dangerous one today. Well, it wasn't very different back then. Although Rome had pretty much squelled a lot of the issues between the inhabitants of Gaza, which are different inhabitants than there are today. We're not talking about Palestinians, but uh, Phoenicians mostly. And you have the, the inhabitants of Gaza. He says, I want you to position yourself on that road. And I know it's a dry, dusty, dirty road, and there's no shade there. This is a desert. Just go out there and stand in the middle of the desert. I have an appointment for you. Isn't that incredible? Go out there and stand in the middle of the desert. Um, i got a job for you. Just make your way there, that road. Um, and if you're traveling to Gaza, you're likely either going to Egypt or into Africa, uh, or perhaps down, and that's called the, the, the old King's Highway down. And so we find that down in that region. And so... Philip is obedient. He goes where he's told to go. He is, verse 27, he rises and he went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, happens by. And if you think he's by himself in his one little chariot, you don't know much about what it means to carry the queen's treasury. So he is in charge of the, of the queen's treasury down in Ethiopia. Now, uh, we want to talk about a little bit about this Ethiopian. Um, First of all, we we not uh, told a lot about him in terms of uh, why he was in Jerusalem. We can make some assumptions, and the assumption is he's there to worship. And we've just come out of a season of a lot of high Jewish worship days of of uh, Passover, of Pentecost, and stretching perhaps a little bit farther along uh, into the fall season. So we find him heading home. He's been up there worshiping, uh, which means that he's been a Jew. Whether he was uh, born that way, we don't know. Whether he was born into a Jewish family down in Ethiopia, that and certainly there was Jewish families during the dispersion who did uh, migrate down into that region, or whether he was uh, a convert to Judaism, we really don't know. But he was in Jerusalem there to worship. And implied in it is he's worshiping the God of Israel. And so he is in charge of the treasury of the queen of, of uh, Ethiopia, names her. This would have been a familiar uh, 
person to uh, someone like Theophilus, who's described as most excellent, which is a, a, a fairly high title in the Roman uh, echelons. And so he names that uh, that he this was a high authority uh, eunuch under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He's heading home. And he's heading home with, with a scroll, with a Bible, with uh, the Old Testament, and he's reading out of it. And it's fascinating, the passage he just happens to be reading out of is in Isaiah, um, which is interesting because today you go to Israel and Isaiah is perhaps one of the least read books in Israel today. And every messianic ministry that goes into Israel today starts with Isaiah. They keep drawing rabbis, they keep drawing Israelites back to the book of Isaiah. Uh, and because the rabbis struggle when you get to Isaiah 50 through 55, they really struggle with how do we deal with this person, the suffering servant? Who is this guy? And of course it lists out Jesus Christ so easily. And so Philip comes across this Ethiopian and he's sitting in his chariot. And everyone makes a big deal that he caught the chariot. Um, the chariot isn't moving very fast if the guy is sitting down reading, okay? We'll just put it like that. Chariots uh, are not, uh, I mean, in the day they were the luxury vehicles, but uh, not like what you're accustomed to. And so he's sitting, reading. And Philip comes up to him, runs up to him, hears him. Because the Spirit led him there. So we have the angel telling him where to put up shop. Uh, as he's there in a desert, along a road, waiting for someone to come by, he runs up and he overhears the Ethiopian reading. And of course we can quickly identify the passage right out of Isaiah 53. Uh, we would call them verses 7 and 8. Um, and Philip knows his scripture. He can quickly identify what this man is reading. I want to start there with our ministry to the lost. When they encounter a passage of God's word, and in various settings, uh, when they have access to scripture, and they quote it, and, and there are some, thing, some scriptures quoted now and again in, in our society. We have some Christian-like foundation in our nation uh, and still in our culture, and we still have some references. Sometimes they're badly misquoted, sometimes just slightly misquoted. Um, even if you go into the CIA headquarters, you've got it written big on the wall, scripture passage. Um, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And interesting that they got it right when most people get it wrong. And uh, we usually say set you free, but the Bible says it makes you free. And there's a big difference between those two. But there it is. There's a big Bible verse in the entry there of CIA headquarters. So we can encounter God's word in various places. I know that there's a big movement trying to eradicate it from the public marketplace, from the public arena. And there's a reason for that is because they don't want this to happen. Because when we encounter God's word in the public arena, whether by someone quoting it or misquoting it, whether it's someone reading it or just uh, being confronted with it, uh, we have an opportunity to share with them. And so Philip, because he knows the word, he recognizes it, he knows exactly what this man is reading. He comes up and he says, do you understand what you just said? Do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand it? A pretty fundamental question. Just do you understand? Do you know what Christianity is really about? Do you know what 
the Bible is really trying to communicate. Do you understand what you already know? And here we need to distinguish two things. There's a knowledge, and there are some people who amazingly have interesting knowledge of the Bible. They always know that verse, judge not, lest ye be judged, right? They all know that verse. <laughs> Every one of your friends knows that. Um, every Christian knows it too, because as soon as you confront them with their sin, judge not, pastor. And I was like, oh, let's get out your Bible and let's find out what that really means. Let's really test that. And so they, they have some knowledge of God's word. And when I confront people, I find that they have this, this, it's not very complete usually, but they have some idea of what the Bible teaches. Even in our, in our really post-Christian era that we live in, there's still some some knowledge that, that this is in the Bible somewhere. And I'll say, it doesn't say there's somewhere, this kind of, uh, and they make those kinds of statements. So they have some knowledge, even in this late hour of what's scripture, but there's a difference between that and understanding. And so this man had knowledge of God's word. He had it right in front of him, in fact. He was reading it. He had some interest in it. He was uh, searching, looking, for truth. And Philip comes up and asks a very honest question, um, which is kind of interesting. There's a guy alongside the road. Over here as you're out reading out loud. And says, do you understand it? Do you understand what you've read? And we find in the heart of this Ethiopian a great wisdom that I think is lacking in a lot of us today in verse 31 how can I unless someone guides me and we begin to see the heart of someone ready to come to Christ if you're looking for one who is really ready to come to Christ one of the attributes you're going to see in them is a kind of humility that is ready to really deal with the hard issues of life and to acknowledge, I don't have it. I don't know it. I haven't gotten it. And I want to share with you, I know that that's getting more and more rare. Because our society does not consider humility a virtue anymore. In fact, we consider the opposite of virtue. That if you have a lot of self-esteem and you're arrogant, that that's virtuous. That that means you got your act together. Um, but in the Roman world, one of the great seven virtues of the Roman Empire, one of them was humility. This willingness to recognize that I don't have all the answers. And here this man is, he had been to Jerusalem to worship, means he had made the pilgrimage there. That alone is substantial. He took off from his time and his, and his responsibilities to go up to Jerusalem for worship, and he's there. He has a copy of God's Word. That's substantial. He's reading, he's actually reading it, which puts some must to shame, right? We all have copies of God's Word, but are we reading it? He's actually reading it. And so he's way down the road, and here he's confronted, and he could easily respond to Philip, Who do you think you are? Of course I know what I'm reading. I, I understand Greek, or Hebrew, whatever he's, text he's reading out of, probably the Greek, Septuagint. And so we, we find him not responding in that way, not in any arrogant fashion, to the question, Do you understand what the Bible teaches. A very simple question, but it still challenges us a little bit. Do you really understand what the Bible, not do you know what it teaches, and that's weakening more and more in our society, but do you understand it? 
And what a humble response. How can I unless someone guides me? I need a guide. I need someone to help me. Now, now the Spirit had guided him to read this passage. And so he is in a very powerful messianic chapter of Isaiah 53. Let's read all of Isaiah 53. That's just worth, it's a worthwhile effort. Let's go back there. It might add a few minutes to our message today, but I promise to get you out of here not late. I didn't say early. Isaiah 53, it's only 12 verses, won't take long. Uh, Let's read it together, just so you can see the context of what Philip has to deal with. And by the way, 7 and 8 is what the eunuch just read out loud, so right in the middle of this chapter, pretty much. It says, Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, that's what he has just finished reading before Philip showed up. And here's what Philip overhears him reading. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb... To the slaughter as a sheep before shears to silence to open his mouth, his mouth. He was taken from prison from judgment. Who will declare generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's the text that Philip has to work with. Pretty powerful stuff. It's no wonder many in the Jewish community don't want to read a passage like that. And so in the midst of this, the Ethiopian makes a response that that demonstrates his heart is already desiring to discover What is it that God wants to communicate to me through his word? I'm not using God's word to defend myself. I'm not using it to embattle Christians and to try to shut them up. I'm wanting to really know what does the Bible want to tell me? What is it trying to communicate to me? And I need a guide. And of course, God has brought him one. And Philip begins, it says, with that one passage. He reads again the verse that Philip has already heard him reading out loud. And Eunuch has a question. Well, first got to tell you, we, we skip one little part. Um, the Eunuch says, why don't you come up here and sit with me? 
I'm not going to leave you in the desert. Come on up, sit with me. And so it says Philip uh, went up in the chariot, sits with them. They read the passage again, and uh, the eunuch takes the lead. He is a genuine one that wants to know. He says, who is this talking about? Is it the guy who wrote it? Is it Isaiah talking about himself? Is it someone else? Who is this person? He's obviously a pretty important character. He is going to bear the sin of people. He's going to take sin away. That's what Isaiah 53 describes, that this one who has suffered, who wounds it, who, who is rejected of men and yet accepted by God is the one that's going to take away sin. I want to know who this guy is. Was it Isaiah? He died. He was, he was rejected by men. Is it referring to that prophet or is it someone else? Great question. You would call it a simple one. If I put that up on, if Pastor Leishman in Sunday school put that up as a question, it would just be like, the ones this morning in Sunday school, and everyone you sat there says, well, that's so simple, I'm not even going to answer it. Everyone knows it's Jesus. Everyone doesn't know it's Jesus, people. They don't really know why he came. They don't understand who he is. They know who he is, but they don't understand who he is, and there's a big difference. And the simple answer to us confounds the world. The Muslims have an idea of who Jesus is. They believe in Jesus. He's a great prophet, right underneath Muhammad. The Hindus believe in Jesus. They wanted to add him to the billboard. When we were in India, I got to wear my India thing. Um, when we were there, there he is. You know, here's all the gods. We can worship them all. And Jesus is right up there with them. Just add them to your list. They know Jesus. They don't understand him. They don't get who he is and what he is and and what he's accomplished. And so um, the the simple answer to the question is, well, no, it's not Isaiah, it's Jesus, obviously. This is the suffering servant. This is the the Son of God that's referred to way back there in Isaiah um, when it says that a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. He shall call his name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All that's in Isaiah. And Philip doesn't give him the short answer. Philip says, you want to understand? Then let's take some time. And the indication is, is that the chariot didn't stop now. The chariot's gone back to moving now. Philip's gotten back on it. Because down the road, while they're having this conversation, um, they're going to come across some water, which apparently wasn't at the place where they started talking. And so they're going to have a conversation. It says that Philip began right there. And he says, um, I'm going to begin with the scripture that you're asking about, and I'm going to preach Jesus to him. I'm going to proclaim who this Jesus is to you. I want you to look at all that chapter requires. Go back through all of Isaiah from beginning to end, go back all the way to Genesis, all the way through the, the law, the prophets, um, go through all of it, and I'm going to show you that it all points to one person, and that one person is Jesus. Now remember where this guy has been prior to this. He has been in Jerusalem. What's been going on in Jerusalem for the last few weeks and months? There has been a great stirring of God there. We have thousands coming to Christ and entering the temple and in the outer courtyards. So 
um, he may have heard, overheard some things, and, and maybe he heard this text being used by somebody in the, in the temple courtyard of the, of the Gentiles, um, the outer courtyard, which is where Solomon's colonnade was, or porch. And so he may have overheard those things. And so he wanted to read it for himself, and reading it in the scriptures, he still didn't quite get, who is this? And Philip begins to fill in all the blanks. Oh, that we would be able to take a copy of the Old Testament and be able to do what Philip just does and preach Jesus without Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And he does it. And it can be done. And it should be done. For he is the Savior of the world. And all of the prophets speak to him, point to him as the deliverer. As we saw in Stephen's sermon, how he rehearses the whole history of Israel. And he says, listen, Moses spoke about a guy to come who would be like him, and that's the guy you listen to, not Moses. Moses declared or prophesied his replacement. Don't ignore the replacement. He's already come. His name is Jesus. You rejected him. You murdered him. But God raised him from the dead. This is our message. And we cannot be satisfied with people just knowing facts about Jesus without understanding what that means. The fact that the Mormons think that you know Jesus was us and became God somewhere means that they don't understand who Jesus really is. The fact that, that Jehovah's Witnesses think that he's brother of Satan, they don't understand who he is, do they? They all believe in Jesus! they don't understand anything about him. Not the truth that will make us free from our sin and its guilt. Philip starts with this guy who's already a follower of Jehovah and says, this is what the Bible proclaims. And there's one man that has fulfilled not only the description, but also fulfilled the role, the job. His work has been accomplished And now the question um, that I have for you is, do you believe? It's interesting because the eunuch really interjects something we're going to talk about here in a minute. But I want to jump down to verse 37. Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you can. You may. And his statement is, I believe. And look at his conclusion. Now we begin to see what Philip had taught him. It says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Where does he come up with that out of the blue? Well, it wasn't out of the blue. Philip had just preached him for who knows how long on the chariot is moving along there, and Philip had just given him the gospel. This is Jesus. This is he fulfilled all of these, and he is he has accomplished this, and the Jews murdered him, and, and but he rose again the third day, and he has conquered sin and death and And because he is God and not just man, um, he can do that for all men. Because he was the perfect son of God, he died not for his own sins, but for other sins. He was the perfect substitute. All that temple sacrifice, all that blood, shedding of blood, the blood of goats couldn't do it. It had to be pointing to the blood of a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus was that perfect sacrifice. And this is how sins are forgiven and taken away. And the man declares, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Son of God, that he is deity itself. 
I believe in the divine deliverer. And I believe that person is Jesus. And he is of one kind. He is singular. He, there's, he's not to be added to my list. He is singular. Interesting, in the midst of the end of this, this is a really strong teaching on baptism, which is going to happen next Sunday. I hope you're planning on bringing a carrion dinner, staying and having lunch with us, and then following that we'll have baptism about 1.30. Um, and so we're uh, looking forward to that. But the eunuch, kind of interestingly, as he's reading and, and being taught about Jesus Christ out of the Old Testament, doesn't ask, how do I get my sins taken away? He doesn't ask, well, how do I access this this uh, wonderful gift of salvation? Um, he just says, um, here's some water. Can I be baptized? Where did that come off from? Here's some water. What keeps me from being baptized? Now, this is why I tend to believe that he was a convert to Judaism, because Gentile who's, who convert to Judaism, one of the things they participate in, and baptism wasn't created by Christians, um, would they be baptized? That they would be uh, immersed in a pool of living water. That means it had to have an inlet and an outlet. Our, our baptismal tank does not have inlets. It has a top. So it has. So we're not, it's not living water, but we'll dump it out fast enough that it won't get stale. Um, and so, uh, that was the requirement. So the likelihood he's already made a, a conversion to Judaism, and he recognized that baptism was one facet of that. And so he is already, in his heart, converted to Christ. By the way, you don't find anywhere in here that he prayed a sinner's prayer, do you? He believes it. Hook, line, and sinker. He is there. He is ready to commit himself. And if you think he's traveling by himself, think again. A guy like this does not travel on the road to Jerusalem to Ethiopia by himself. He has an entire entourage with him. That he is in charge of. They're there to protect him, and, and, and he's there leading them, more than likely, unless Candace is with them, but there's no indication she was along for the trip. So he's got a whole community he's traveling with. <laughs> Go ahead and back home to Ethiopia. And he comes across his, listen, I want to make a declaration to all these people that are with me right now, heading back home, that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I already know how to do that because of Judaism, and that is, here's some water, enough water, by the way, that's one of the reasons we immerse, this is one of the proof texts we use of why we don't pour or sprinkle. They always had enough water with them to pour or sprinkle. Would you agree with that? You don't travel from Jerusalem to Ethiopia without enough water to pour or sprinkle over someone's head. No, the Ethiopian understood, here's enough water, here's enough, I got, we, we've come across some water. Well, there's a river, a pond, a stream, I don't know what it was, but Water and tank, I don't know. But here's some water, enough for us to get down into and come up out of. What would keep me from being baptized right now? I want to make this commitment right now. I don't want to go another mile without communicating to everyone here, all these people that I work with, <laughs> all these people I live with, these are the people who, maybe I have authority over them, I'm a high eunuch, or maybe they have authority over me, or maybe we're peers, um, I want to make a commitment in front of all of them. What keeps me from being baptized? He already had the association that I need to communicate to everybody a new life. I am 
changing. I am, I am converting. That's what it means. I'm going, transforming from one into another. I'm putting this away and I am adopting this. And that's what baptism communicates. It doesn't cause it to happen. It communicates that it has happened. And he has already come to full belief in Jesus Christ. He hasn't declared it yet. But the indication is by his desire to be baptized, it already has happened in his heart. And so, no, I'm not a big one on praying a sinner's prayer. There's a lot of people that are going to spend eternity in hell who have prayed a sinner's prayer. Because that's all we told them about it. No, accessing the salvation of Jesus Christ is about surrendering ourselves to him entirely. And this Ethiopian is ready to do that right in front of everybody. No pride issues here. No, I can't let people see me cry. No, I can't demonstrate my sorrow over my... I can't do that. No, that's embarrassing. No, none of that. It was like, stop the train. It was a camel train, but it was a train. And so I'm getting off, and we're going we're gonna to handle this right now. I want to deal with this right now. And the only thing that would prevent baptism in Philip's mind was, well... You brought baptism first, which is kind of interesting. And sometimes I have people come to me and say, I need to be baptized. I go, well, why? Sometimes people still bring baptism to me first. Um, usually it's about their kids. Oh, my kids never got baptized, Pastor. Oh, what am I going to do? And I, was, and I just keep telling them to this passage. Well, you can't really be baptized unless you believe. And shame on those who are baptizing people who don't believe. Philip sets forth a requirement. If you believe with all your heart, you may. I'll participate in that with you. So the chariots stand still. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch went down into the water again. Can't do that really in a bucket or in a, this is a pretty significant part of a piece of water. Baptizes him. They came up out of the water. Uh, again, we, we find that immersion is the most plainly uh, understanding of what's going on there. In fact, the word baptize means to immerse, to dunk, to dip. Um, and so when Jesus uh, at the communion says that it, he dipped his bread in the sop, that's the same Greek word, he baptized it. He baptized his bread in the sop. And so it's to dip, to immerse. So he does that. Philip is going to be taken away. God's got other work for him. He's going to be preaching up the coast and heading to Caesarea, probably Caesarea Philippi, uh, along the coast. And uh, uh, But the Ethiopian eunuch, this is gets me more exciting. As exciting as it is so far, the Ethiopian eunuch um, isn't done. It says that he went his way rejoicing. Now I want to remind you, he's got a copy of the Bible. He's been, we don't know how long Philip was in that chariot with him, moving along and uh, sharing th- this instruction. And he's going to head home. He's never going to see Philip again, but he's got his scripture. He's got the Holy Spirit. He's, he's, he's made this commitment in front of everybody. And he heads down to Ethiopia and for those of you who know anything about church history, about this era, uh, we have a very strong church established in a country called Ethiopia. 
We have no record of any apostles going down there. None. Who do you think we attribute the church in Ethiopia to? This guy. This guy. If you remember when we were going through the gospel uh, and we saw Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee, meeting up with this this man who was demon-possessed, and he cleanses him. The man says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, no, um, you don't follow me. I want you to go tell everybody what happened to you. And we find that there is this huge trans, uh, witnessing that's been going on Transjordan, uh, in, in what's modern day Jordan and Gilead. And he goes into the higher up, the, the, the ten cities of Rome, uh, and eight of them are over there on that side of Jordan, and they were all prepped and ready for the gospel. Jesus sent that guy. And this is such a guy as that, who is transformed by Jesus Christ, goes back home, and he begins preaching. And a very powerful church is established in Ethiopia, um, and all of Africa, in northern Africa there, uh, in fact, not very long from now, uh, one of the big centers of Christianity is going to be in Alexandria, Egypt, but the other center of the southern church is going to be Ethiopia. And if you go even farther forward, this church didn't just survive for his generation, but for generations this church was strengthened. And even in the rise of, of Islam, this isn't the first time Islam has tried to take over the world, by the way, if you just... Heads up to a little history. Um, this has been their goal all along. And so they tried, and they came up against a group of people as they tried to penetrate southern Af- down into South Africa, and they came up against a group of people. Guess where? Ethiopia. And Islam stopped dead in its tracks for a long, long time because they came up against a group of people called the Donatists who held to Christ. They didn't fight with swords, grenades, nothing. They simply said, you can kill us, you can do whatever you want to us, you can torture us. We are followers of Christ. And it stopped Islam. It just stopped it. And they became, became the, the, the wall that kept Islam from penetrating the rest of Africa in their day. This is the effect one layman going to one guy on a dry, dusty road from Jerusalem to Gaza saying, I want you not just to know, I want you to understand. And one guy humbly submitting, and we attribute so much to this account that this one went home rejoicing He knows the truth and now the scripture's been opened up to him and he is able to go and communicate that and to share that with others. And this is the power of the gospel. And in this entire account, the apostles aren't involved. (laughs) Laban. That's you. I was going to say you and me, but (laughs) I have to exclude myself. I don't get to participate in this one. It's your job. This is what what God expects you to do if you're qualified. How are you qualified? Full of faith? Holy Spirit-led? Righteous? 
This is what God is capable of doing through you. We talked last week about the authority, or two weeks ago, about the authority issue of of the formal um, communication that the gospel had gone from from Israel to Samaria. Uh, and, that, and then the necessity of Peter being involved in that, we're going to see the necessity of it formally being involved in opening a door to true Gentiles. And the Ethiopian eunuch is not a true Gentile because he's a convert to Judaism or was born a Jew. We're not sure which. Um, I tend towards the, the, the prior. Um, but that's necessary. But it's not in that period of time to have that formal recognition that God not only wants Israel to be saved, he wants Samaria to be saved, and he wants even all the Gentiles saved. That's going to be an important thing that Luke wants to draw out for us here uh, in Acts 10, 11, and following, um, that this is uh, what God's plan is for salvation to be global in its, in its appeal, in its vision. And yet, Philip here has already captured that. He's gone to Samaria, a place everybody wanted to walk around. He went there. He shared Christ. Because he's a willing instrument, God says, I got an assignment for you. And he sends him down to a dusty road in the middle of nowhere, and he meets up with a very important person, one guy. But that one guy, we see his impact on Ethiopia, and church history opens it up for us. God had a plan to reach that nation for Christ. That people. And as this eunuch heads south, heads home, God is going to get Peter's attention. (laughs) And I'm convinced that by the time the Ethiopian gets to Ethiopia, Peter has met Cornelius. Not by the professional clergy member, by one of the seven. One of us. Pick from among yourselves seven men. And this is not a transition passage. I'm sorry. I don't like to call it that. This is about the seven. We start off talking about the twelve. This is about the seven. They're distinct from the twelve. And we've seen that here in this chapter. But it's not that the twelve are the only ones that can do something. The seven godly men who are part of the church who went where the twelve wouldn't go. This week you're going to go to places I wouldn't go. For one thing, I don't have an ID badge to get on the Sandia lab site. You're going to be going places I wouldn't go. I wouldn't think to go. I might not be welcome to go. I just don't have a need to go. You are that missionary to that place. And this is what God can do. If we'll surrender ourselves and say, I'm willing to serve you, Lord. And if that means going places other Christians won't go and reaching people that other Christians kind of scratch their heads, really? You think they're the ones? And so be it. The idea that this is a one-way street of (laughs) pastors charging their church, I think Philip and 
Stephen both had some things to show the apostles. That as you admonish us with God's word and a teaching, let our actions of going and witnessing to those that you're kind of overlooking admonish you. That when God says he wants the gospel to go everywhere, he meant everywhere to everyone. So this week, as you go out and go places that I won't go, for whatever reason, know your scriptures. Let the Spirit work in you. And don't just be satisfied that people know something about Jesus. Bring them to understand who Jesus is and what it means for them either accept or reject him. That they might see you as that contact point to guide them into the truth. That the truth might make them free. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the testimony of men like Stephen and Philip. Lord, we thank you that you choose to work through any instrument that will make themselves available to you. That while these men did not share the credentials, perhaps, of the apostles, this they had, is that they were fully committed to you, fully trusting in you. They believed that you would do as you promised. They would go to whom you desired to reach. Lord, I pray for a similar spirit amongst our number here. That we might have that same energy and passion to reach those that you have appointed for our lives to intersect in the next week, month, or year. That we not, might not see those just happenstance, but that we might see those as opportunities to ask, do you understand? Lord, give us the boldness to come up to even high authorities and ask them that question. Do you understand? that we might see some come to know you as Savior, even this week. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.